Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. The new Young Line sneaker they rolled out is tremendous. It's my favorite walk-around shoe. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. As a child, she escaped the conflict in the Balkans by immigrating from Croatia to Australia. And in 1999, when she was 16 years old, she blasted her way onto the tennis scene, upsetting world number one Martina Hingis in the first round at Wimbledon. In 2002, she got to four in the world and during her career won six WTA titles, including the 2001 Italian Open. Her early years were marred by the erratic behavior of her father, and in 2018, she released her autobiography, Unbreakable, where she detailed years of emotional and physical abuse at the hands of her father. Unbreakable went to the top of the national bestseller list in Australia. Yelena Dokic is today's guest. Do you have me? Are you, can you hear me clear? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Now, what's that I see behind you? Is that Melbourne proper there? Is that the... Yeah. That's Melbourne CBD, yeah. <laughs> Melbourne CBD. Yeah. And you live in a high rise there, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I do. How long have you been in that spot? Um, well, I've been in Melbourne for uh, 15 years now, uh, especially at, at, like towards that second part of my career, I already moved to Melbourne and uh, it was uh, really convenient for me to to live here and to train here, to do my off season here. So it kind of just stuck, and I stayed here, and uh, I've loved it. Um, I've loved it ever since. And a lot of my work is based um, based in Melbourne. So yeah, I've, I've just kind of say say here, fell in love. I did grow up in um, in Sydney, which is another amazing city. But uh, yeah, just this part of my career, this second part, has been uh, all about Melbourne and everything here. Well, I'll tell you, you couldn't be in a greater city. That is, uh, Melbourne is off the charts. The young woman you hear, former world number four, she has one of the most immense and intense stories in the in the history of women's tennis. In my, in my opinion, her uh, autobiography, Unbreakable, hit the top of the charts in Australia. And that is Yelena Dukic. I have to just say it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> As you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the off-the-court report. Where, where have you been throughout this pandemic? I was in Melbourne for the last second week of the Australian Open, and things were starting to pop off just about then. Yeah, I, I actually kind of can't believe that we got through the Australian Open the way that it, that we did, and no one really thought that we would be here um you know six months later everything was was so different but it kind of got it was starting to get really bad in march and april we went into lockdown here um towards the end of march beginning of april and actually melbourne's been one of the hardest hit cities um in australia because actually the, the rest of australia has done so well and they they're uh, almost completely open and we we've struggled a little bit here in melbourne so we've actually been in a lockdown or some kind of lockdown in, in for, for six months and in a, in a really heavy lockdown now over um, 100 days so we're actually looking forward to this uh this sunday because we're supposed to kind of get out of this lockdown a little bit so we'll see what happens but uh yeah it's been it's been very very you know different very tough and 
you know, whether you're a tennis player or, or whether you're just a normal person or, you know, it's hit everyone and it's such a, a strange situation. And, and like I said, Australian Open almost went ahead as normal as nothing was going on and nothing was, was going to change. But all of a sudden we hit Indian Wells already and it was all over. So, yeah, it's been quite quite strange year, uh, very difficult year for so many, but, uh, you know, hopefully it will, it will get better. Uh, you know, hopefully next year we'll see what happens, but um, I don't think we're out of the, the woods and it's going on all over the world. So we just have to hang in there. Now, do you have clarity on what Tennis Australia's plan is for the front end of 2021 or is it, are they just staying nimble? Are they just trying to stay nimble? No, I mean, we've heard already, actually, it's been made public that uh, Roger Federer and Serena Williams have committed uh, to the Australian Summer and the Australian Open. And, uh, yeah, it's actually been uh, quite a lot going on here the last couple of weeks and then things that have come out on the news that they are working very hard on the Australian Open and the whole Australian Summer to to have it and and, uh, for it to go ahead. I think the question will be, you know, what do we do with crowds, whether you have any, if you do, how, you know, how many people will, will you let through the gates or if you just don't have any at all. So I think that will depend on the situation. But I think they want to hold the summer, go ahead and, and, and make it as normal as, as possible. Uh, we do have uh, one different thing uh, compared to the US Open and the French where Australia has been uh, quite tough with its borders and everyone coming in and out. So players do have to quarantine for 14 days. There's no way around that. Uh, but I know that Tennis Australia and, and the Australian Open and Craig Tiley, they're working very hard to make it as easy as possible for the players and to still be able to get some training in so that they're ready for the tournaments. But from what we hear, a lot of the players will be coming in uh, you know, early in December already to, to get ready for the Open. I've heard that they're going to set up like like tennis resorts for them to go, like everyone's going to be able to go to different resorts, quarantine, and then get themselves into position to, you know, rock and roll in Melbourne. Is that, do you, have you yeah. heard that? Yeah, I've heard that. And, and uh, we've had that with the, with the um, footy here as well. Uh, where all the teams and all the players and even their families have been in like a quarantine hub for three months and uh, they've been playing and everything's gone, you know, pretty well uh, as far as the whole quarantine situation is concerned and then going on and actually playing the sport. So I think they're going to try and do the same thing with tennis and uh, try and make it as easy as possible. And, uh, you know, Australia in general has been doing really well with, with coronavirus. We haven't had a huge amount of cases uh, even here in Melbourne, you know, at the peak, we had maybe 700 a, a day. Um, so we, we, we've been lucky, I think, with that. Uh, so I think they want to hold the summer, especially the Australian Open, and make it as normal as, as possible. And even, like I said, even potentially have crowds. Man, I, I pray that that happens. Um, what a strange year. Uh, let's move into our second set. This is the On the Court Report. What were your impressions of the ladies' tournament at uh, Roland Garros, um, particularly Iga Sviantek? Yeah, it's been really interesting, actually, and exciting to watch her. And, and uh, people have actually been talking about her for a while, even though she's only 19. And uh, at the Australian Open this year, as well, she made the fourth round. And we saw a, a glimpse of what she's capable of. Only two years ago, she won the uh, Wimbledon Junior title. So 
uh, you know, she's actually made huge strides even going into Roland Garros. She was just outside the top 50. So she's been doing really well. Uh, I think almost going a little bit under the radar because uh, she's quite young. But, uh, you know, it didn't surprise me that she did uh, well. She's got a big game. It's very hard to find a major weakness. She's got a big serve, uh, so solid with her ground strokes, actually has a lot of heaviness and topspin to her ground strokes, which not a lot of women have, and I like that. Um, and she moves well. She's not afraid to come to the net, uh, has a good drop shot. So there's a lot of variety there, but also it's, um, it's that, uh, mentality you know she has no fear we saw that at the French Open and you know maybe we didn't expect her to win a Grand Slam just yet but it's someone that people have been talking about that you know in, in the years to come that that she could become a Grand Slam champion so uh, I'm very um, very impressed with her she's very exciting to watch and I think she'll win uh, many more Grand Slams. You think she's going to win more Grand Slams? I, I mean she, she was so dominant it was unbelievable and the one stroke that I thought that she hit that I really can't, I remember uh, a, a woman on the tour that hit it was the down the line backhand over the high part of the net, but heavy top on it. You know, a lot of the women we play a little bit flatter and that's normal. Uh, but, but she does have that top spin. And, and even when she's playing really aggressive, it's that controlled aggression. Uh, she doesn't go for too much, but it's still... You know, very aggressive. She's got that height over the net. If you look at her shots, forehand and backhand, when she goes down the line, so we're talking over the higher part of the net. I mean, she, she there's height on that ball, and, and she's still able to be aggressive. So that's a little bit different to to a lot of the other a lot of the other women. So it's exciting to watch her, and she doesn't play her usual patterns as well. She goes back behind the opponent. Tactically, she's really strong as well, and actually plays very mature tennis for someone that's 19. To me, she looks like someone that's, uh, you know, 10 years older as a tennis player and someone that's been on the tour for a while. So that's why that's been impressive to see. And then when you hear her talk, you actually see that she's 19 and, and she's uh, very sweet. And, and um, yeah, I, I'm very excited to actually watch her play again and uh, see, you know, what she, she'll still be able to play this year. There's not many tournaments, but also see... Uh, what she's going to be able to do next year in the Australian Open as well, because I actually think some of the faster surfaces will also suit her well, because uh, she does have a big game. What were your observations of Sophia Kennan's tournament? Look, I think she did extremely well to get to the final, and, and that match against Petra Kudova was a great match. Uh, I think she came up in the final against someone that just really did play better on the day and outplayed her. Uh, look, she's done so well. To, to make another Grand Slam final after winning Australia this year, that's not easy to do in the same year, especially in the year that we've had with, with a six-month break. So she's shown that she's got the consistency. I like her game as well. And, and uh, again, she, she moves so well. Uh, she uses every part of the court. She doesn't make many mistakes. Uh, she's got a great drop shot that I really like as well. And um, she's improving. She's improving her game all the time. And, and I, like I said, I really like that consistency. You're never going to see her go into a match and play terribly bad because she is so consistent. You know, her serve is always up there, you know, 70%. Um, she wins 70, 75% of points behind her first serve. And that was the case in Australia as well. So she does some of those basic things really, really well. And that's why she's so, she's so consistent. And, and I like the way that she goes about things with her, um, you know, with her body language. And she's always on, on the move. And she always looks like she's rushing somewhere. And I, and I like that. You know, she's feisty. She's 
Fiery, she's a, a huge fighter out there, one of the biggest on the tour, and full credit to her for that. Do you think her father and those images we see, those optics, is a problem? Uh, look, uh, I think it's uh, tough to um, talk about someone that you don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even know her that well, and and um, and and her father as well. We've we've talked about him this year, the Australian Open, actually quite a lot, and um, how nervous he gets, and how uh, you know into the match um, uh, he gets every single time. And and look, it's 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 always tough because he's not just her coach; he's her father. So I think there's. Uh, you know, that, that, that's a tough one. That's, a, that's very tough um, to have that relationship, you know, to have your father also as a coach. And, you know, there have been some very successful relationships in tennis like that. And, um, you know, Caroline Wozniak, he comes to mind and, and they've done so well and, and they kept a great relationship, um, you know, both as a coach and a daughter and as a father as a daughter. But we've also seen some that have um, not gone so well. So, uh, look, look uh, whatever they're doing, obviously from a tennis perspective, it's working. He's been there from the beginning. Um, he's helped her get to where she is and, and they, they seem to get along really well uh, from what we can see, you know, from the outside. So that's all I can go off. But, um, you know, he does get very, very nervous and very, very stressed. And, um, you know, I, I would like to see him sometimes relax a little bit because she's done so well and then one of grand slam already um but yeah sometimes he just uh yeah just looks extremely nervous during the final in the middle of the first set she looked like she was like gonna cry on the court i guess the father sort of yelled at her then left the, then left the stadium then came back you know you you had some of these experiences yourself do you recognize those symptoms well look uh, again um it's hard to know, like, I'm not there every day. I'm not on the tour. I, I, you know, I can't see exactly what goes on. And these are just some of the things that a little bit we might see from the outside. And it's tough to judge a situation by that, you know. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully uh, the situation is, uh, you know, nowhere near with, with what I had. Uh, but like I said, there's always going to be, in those types of relationships with, with parents, um, there's always going to be, I think, situations a little bit like that. Even like with Caroline and her father, um, they had a great relationship, you know, both, like I said, as a, as a coach and, and a player, but also as a father and daughter. And, you know, he would go out there sometimes on those change events and, um, you know, they would uh, get into some maybe arguments even sometimes about sure. what she needed to do. And that's normal. That happens. You would have that with your coach, even if he wasn't your father. So... That's why I think those relationships are extremely hard because it's uh, hard to draw that line on that kind of private aspect of your life and then the professional one. So I'm always a little bit more of a fan of actually having a coach separately to your parent. And, and um, I'm a big believer in leaving that kind of, um, you know, parent and, um, you know, child relationship the way that it's supposed to be and, and not interfere kind of in the sport and the tennis, especially in, tennis is such a uh, tough individual competitive sport. So, it, you know, it can get pretty tough for, for both sides. Do you have any interesting information or feel for why Nick and Ash didn't play this year? Anything more than simply the, the, I guess just the, the COVID situation. 
Well, it actually is as simple as that from, you know, what we've heard and, and here in the media, they really didn't feel comfortable going and, and Ash Barty, you know, definitely didn't feel comfortable going, going to the States and to Europe and she's talked uh, constantly not, it's not just about her decision and whether she wants to go, but it's about her team as well feeling safe and they didn't feel like it was the right thing to do and she wanted to take the rest of the year off and, and uh, kind of wait um, and see what will happen, wait for the Australian summer. Also, there was a problem with bringing her coach um, in uh, to, she lives in Queensland, he's in Victoria, they couldn't bring him over because we had the, the state borders closed and she didn't feel comfortable in her preparation. So, you know, I absolutely understand that. I understand the players that went and played and felt like they, they wanted to, even if it maybe at times didn't feel completely safe to do so. We've seen some positive COVID tests. Um, so I understand both sides. And, and if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, it's your decision to take and not to go. And I, I support, absolutely support that. Nick, the same, he's constantly said that, you know, he really didn't want to go in this whole situation, didn't feel comfortable. Uh, and I understand that as well. But uh, we'll see what happens. Hopefully this whole thing will, will, will calm down. I'm not sure whether it even will, but the Australian Open and, and next year, but for the rest of the tournament and the French and Wimbledon, because this will take still a little while in the best case scenario. So I think some players will have to make some tough decisions on whether to play, whether not to play, where to go, where not to go. And I, I think this will still go on into next year, unfortunately. What were your impressions of the men's final? Uh, I, I watched it from the first to the last point. And uh, yeah, it was one of those ones where I was actually surprised with how Rafael Nadal came out and played. I mean, tactically, a perfect match uh, and just he didn't almost didn't miss the ball for the first two two and a half sets uh, it was incredible for him to bring that kind of level of tennis after only played playing two tournaments that was his second tournament since the break and he's talked about how hard the break was for him uh, he didn't go to the states he didn't have as much tennis as a lot of the other top players especially Novak did go to America and play two tournaments and a lot of the other uh, top guys so uh, it was incredible. I mean, for him to come out and, uh, in a way, underprepared uh, to, to win his 13th major, 20th Grand Slam title, what a story. Um, Novak, look, I think he did well, again, to get to that final. And even though some people felt like he was the favourite, I even felt like he was a favourite, potentially, uh, with, with the form that he brought in. He won Rome. He was playing well. Uh, we thought he might be able to take Rafa down in the final if he got to that. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't meant to be. There's something special with Rafa and that that Philippe Chatrier court in the French Open. Uh, you said tactically. What were your what were your impressions of the tactics? Well, look, I think just just the the variety. He knew that his top spin wasn't going to work as well. The conditions were heavy. They were tough. The balls are heavier. Uh, you could see that, especially against Schwartzman, and then going into the Djokovic match. Nadal uh, really used. Um, those high balls and that high back end um, into the Djokovic um, into the Djokovic back end as well, uh, which was up here above the shoulder, which is always very tough for players. Um, it is the side to kind of go at a little bit more for Novak than the forehand, and, and it and it worked well. I mean, he just did it over and over again. Um, a lot of the traffic, a lot of those that ball direction was going into the Novak back end. He was trying to open up the court. Um, he was reading the drop shots incredibly well and 
that serve. I mean, he served so well for the first two, two and a half sets. It was unbelievable. So I think tactically he played it perfect. He knew a lot of, you know, Novak's balls were going to go to his back and you can see he was ready for that, what he was going to do with it, whether he was going to go down the line, short cross, whether he was going to slice deep into um, Novak's back and whether he was going to lift it. Tactically, he, he played it perfect. Did Novak seem... Um a little screwed up to you? Did he seem a little, um, I don't know, just a little bit off um, attitude-wise? Uh, well, a lot of people said that he was maybe a little bit subdued compared to what he's usually like, and uh, that that kind of energy and intensity maybe wasn't quite there. And uh, maybe a little bit, but I think it has a lot to do with the fact that what happened at the US Open and uh, he's emo keeping his emotions in check a little bit. I think he's, he's at a little bit of a um, crossroads of, uh, you know, using his emotions in a positive way and getting himself up and getting that energy up, uh, but also not going too far that it actually affects his game and what he does on the court. And I think uh, maybe he's in the last couple of weeks and in America and even, at, you know, Rome, we saw him, you know, break a few rackets. There's been that fine line of, um, of of controlling his emotions, but also using them in a positive way. And, and maybe that hasn't always gone his way. I think also the fact that we don't have huge crowds now in tennis, and we, we had a thousand people a day at Roland Garros, but none in America, for example. Um, it's different for, for top players like him. They're used to these huge crowds where sometimes even when you're not up, uh, they, they lift you and it's a very different atmosphere. And, and I think for Novak, sometimes he does need a little bit of that energy, a little bit of that intensity. And I think he was trying to find that now somewhere else within himself, but it led to him going a little bit too far with his emotions. We saw it obviously at the US Open. So I think he was trying to control that a little bit uh, going into Rome and the French Open, but maybe it didn't work out so well because then his intensity went down and he looked a little bit subdued and almost like certain parts of the match like he wasn't actually there so I think it's a fine line and something that he's going to have to work on let's move into our third set this is the portion of our show where we talk about your career you write in your book Frank right from not right from the beginning because you write from the beginning about seeing war but you write in your book that from the second you touched a tennis racket you could hit the ball clean is that true yeah pretty much yeah i was uh i i think i had quite a natural talent uh for the game and and you always see people when they talk about my game talk about you know what great timing i had and how clean i hit the ball and i think that definitely showed that definitely showed early on and it was something that i actually despite all the things that i went through and circumstances and um, with my father and, and, and all the abuse. Um, I think putting all that aside, I had a natural, very natural talent for the game and I had a huge love and passion for ten tennis and that came through. And uh, yeah, pretty much from, from the beginning, I could make contact with it and I, I had really good hand-eye coordination and um, yeah, pretty much from, from the beginning. But I was pretty good at other sports as well, especially sports with, um, with the ball. So I, I think it was something that came naturally. Your relationship with your father is such a sort of a domineering part of your story. One thing I didn't really learn in in totality was 
how affected was he by war? Did did you ever get clarity on, you know, the correlation between that and then really what person he became? Look, uh, potentially, yeah, I think he he definitely was affected by it. And I, I do talk in the book about not actually knowing and getting answers to a lot of the things that I wanted to kind of know and find out why he was the way that he was, why certain things were the way that they were. And um, I talk in the book about already pretty much making it. I was number one junior in the world. I got into the, I think it was the top 30 in the world at, at, uh, at 17 and, and his abuse and behavior was getting was getting worse. And, and these were the things that I didn't understand and I never quite got the answers to or why he was the way that he was. Because I think it's, it's one thing to, to push someone. And, and even if we talk about a little bit of abuse, which shouldn't happen anyway, but this was very, very extreme for a very, very long time. And I never understood quite why. I definitely think there was something in his past and in his uh, maybe even childhood that definitely affect, affected him and affected that. Uh, but yeah, for me, at the end of the day, there is no excuse for that. And I tried for a very long time um, to deal with that, almost 20 years um, of abuse, physical, emotional. And I talk about some of the really bad beatings that I got. And, and uh, they happened later as well, when I was 16, 17, um, when I still kind of couldn't leave home. I was underage, I was still a kid. And I didn't understand it. So, yeah, I, I kind of feel like I never kind of understood that and understood him and never kind of got clarity on that and got answers to that. Uh, but, yeah, there was something definitely there that, I, that affected him. And I definitely felt like when we came to Australia when I was 11, I talk about that in the book as well, that I felt like he got worse, that it really affected him, that we had to leave um, and we were refugees twice and that the war definitely affected him coming to Australia, affected him. He felt like he left his home and he definitely became more, more depressed here. It sounds like he, he drank in an effort to alleviate some kind of pain or some kind of memory. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, we've, we've seen that it was it's very well documented as well. Some of his outbursts and we've seen of that. Of course. And, uh, yeah, it definitely, it definitely was a way for him to try and, you know, release some of that, whatever it was, anger, stress, whatever it might have been. Uh, but he, I think he also took it out on me a lot uh, as well. So, yeah, it's a tough one and something that uh, I can't change and uh, something that uh, he was never able to change in the process, unfortunately. And, um, yeah, it's one of those unfortunate things because it definitely affected me, not just as a tennis player and not just my tennis career and the longevity of it, but as a person in my private life as well. What's interesting, what war can do, you know, war can tear up a family in a lot of different ways. You know, I have a lot of questions. You were at Saddlebrook for a certain amount of time. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing thing, right? Like when I have been to Saddlebrook, I, you know, I, I would be there and be like, wow, this has got to be the greatest place I've ever you know right there's a million tennis courts there's swimming pools there's you can live on a golf course it's the best trainers Martina Hingis is over there Jennifer Capriati's did you have a, a did you have any good times there what was it like being there uh, Ashley Harkle Road was there were you in school there yeah uh, no, because I actually uh, just finished school in Australia and then I did homeschool uh, because I was on the tour um, already. But I yeah, I, it, it, it was, it was, that was, you know, one of the places everyone wanted to go and train and it was great. We all had 
um, we all had houses there, we were living there and, um, uh, you know, just used it as a training base all the time. Whenever we were between tournaments, that's where we would come. Um, you know, so many different, um, obviously, courts and surfaces to choose from. Um, the incredible, they actually had an incredible team of, of, of coaching, of, of hitting partners, fitness trainers. Um, it was one of the, one of those things where you're, you're kind of um, in this kind of isolation and you're, you know, um, cut off from kind of, you feel like the rest of the world, you're in this resort, but at the same time, it's so easy to live there. Um, and, and with all the other stuff and, and other facilities that we had and the pools and the golf courses, and you really felt like you were in this bubble living and training in this really you know nice place, but you could actually get so much of your training done properly and you had it all in one place. So I, I did enjoy it. The weather was incredible all year round. And, and, and um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed training there. I enjoyed my time there. And, um, yeah, it's uh, somewhere where I actually felt really, really comfortable training. And, and um, yeah, I, I, at times, sometimes, actually, I would like to go back and, and uh, go back. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting hearing, talking with you, because the book is so sad. And... But you're not sad. You love tennis. Your tennis, you, you still love, like, you. it seems like you love to be on the court, even in those moments where you were in mental and at times physical agony. You love tennis. Yeah, I do. Absolutely do. And, and I have from the first day, I still do today, and I will for the rest of my life. Absolutely. Everything that has to do with it, both on and off the court. Uh, that's why yeah, I said it's unfortunate that he put me through um, what he put me through because it definitely affected uh, my way of uh, the way that I was, especially mentally. Um, and then, you know, I battled depression and um, anxiety for, you know, almost a decade, almost committed suicide as well. So it affected kind of my time on the court and my ability to play and to compete. And uh, yeah, that, that's what makes me actually a little bit sad because I feel like I could have had so many more years on the court, so many more good years on the court, but actually really enjoy my tennis. But um, despite everything that I went through um, privately, I still really enjoyed tennis on the court. I really did. Even in my toughest moments and my darkest days, I absolutely did. If I didn't have that huge love and passion for tennis, it would have gone um, a lot worse. And I definitely wouldn't have been, you know, on the tour, even for a couple of years, I would have given it up a long time ago. You talk in the book about um, practicing with Hingis, getting invited out to work with Melanie Molitor and, and Martina. Do you retain that relationship? Do you have a friendship with Martina? Yeah, look, she's always been uh, really nice to me and, and uh, someone that I practice quite a bit. And, and um, yeah, she always invited me to wherever she was to practice with her. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, it was uh, one of those, you know, relationships where she was, she was a few years older than me, but uh, I kind of felt like, you know, she always wanted to kind of hit with us and hit with us younger ones and then, in a way, you know, very nice for her to invite someone that's, you know, 14 or 15 to come and train with her for a week before a, a grand slam, you know, and everything was always so well organized and, and we were always looked after. And then later on, obviously, came a little bit more of a friendship on, on the tour. So absolutely. And I have so much respect for her, not just as a tennis player, um, you know, but, but everything else, the way that she's um, off the court as well. Now, I was told that you were so so intense and so serious 
when you practiced that you were terrifying to practice with that the first ball <laughs> the first ball that you would feed was like the hardest ball anyone ever saw fed that you feed a hard hard ball that it was terrifying is is that true who told you that did i'm not gonna tell you, tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah look i was i was i definitely had intensity and i think a lot of that um, also comes from um the situation that i had that i had at home and the way that my dad was absolutely because i always felt like that's how i had to be and, and that's what he was pushing me to be extremely extremely intense extremely tough and i think it was actually a little bit um frightening for some players especially the ones that are perhaps a little bit easier going and I, I, I did actually try to um, uh, tone that down a little bit as I went on in my career um, and I think I managed that to a certain degree but I think there was always that fear um, from from my dad that I felt like that's um, what I had to do and that's what he was pushing me to do to be extremely intense to be extremely quick to feed those balls you know never to stop always be you know very intense very physical so i think it, it definitely it comes from that but uh hopefully i didn't frighten and scare too many of them <laughs> too many players because i certainly didn't mean it i'm actually um i'm actually completely the opposite actually in my uh, in, in my private life and i uh, yeah i'm certainly not i'm anything but scary trust me <laughs> so i have just some questions about the book about the story why didn't the agents intervene? Look, I think uh, it's a tough position for uh, people like the agents uh, to be in because I think it's always tough to interfere in a family situation. And um, I think uh, everyone's different. And I feel like uh, that was 20 20 years ago and, and things are very different today than they were 20 years ago when it comes to things like this, when it comes to abuse, when it comes to domestic violence, and especially abuse in sport and abuse in tennis. We, we have come a long way and there's, um, you know, still probably things that, that we can do. It's always a work in progress, but it's definitely very, very different than it was um, 20 years ago. So um, I don't, um, I don't judge anyone for that and, and um, it is a tough situation to, to, to be in and, and um, uh, you also never know I think what goes on you know behind closed doors and, and I talk about that in the book as well um, and you know it's more to me about you know when I left home I left home when I was 19 and actually for a while there I didn't have an agent um, and manager because I was going through some changes uh, but it's more I think about a lot there's a lot of i think perhaps other people on the tour and that you come in contact with uh, that i think can play a big role in if there is a situation like this um, in asking someone if they're okay or if they, they need anything or if they need help because i did leave home when i was quite young i was 19 and separated myself from that whole situation and separated myself from my father so i think that's the more important time um where you know i kind of felt like like i would have liked to have had um maybe you know more perhaps um support or more contact with people um on the tour to perhaps try and get through a tough time like that because it was a, a big change you went from really your dad to flipping through a few coaches that he kind of forced in and then forced out to 
a coach who turned out to, you know, not be a great coach, but you ended up dating his brother and you're, you guys have been together now for 16, 17, 17 years. Yeah. 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 We've been, Are you uh, going to have a wedding? Or... Yeah, of course we will. Um, we're, we're practically married. So yeah. <laughs> we've been together for so long. We get along um, uh, so, so well. And even when you're in lockdown for six months, we, we don't fight. So, and his name um, is yeah. Tin? You say Tin? Yeah. Tin yeah. Bikich? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. 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 And so, what does he do for a living? Um, uh, well, he will help me for a while with my um, with with some of my stuff on the tour and then um, into real estate. But um, yeah, like like you said, it's it's tough on um, to 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 find someone when you're on the tour when you're constantly playing. And I felt like I was kind of lucky to find that at the time when I did, uh, because I was only 20 years old and we've been together ever since. So. Um, I feel like, yeah, I'm extremely lucky and fortunate um, to have actually met someone that I've stayed with um, ever since. We get along so well. Um, we, you know, I think we just, um, yeah, we, we just go, it's hard to explain, but it's just like, it's almost impossible for us to, to fight about anything. And it's one of those things that it's just meant to be. So definitely there will be, we'll, we'll obviously get um, married definitely at some stage soon, but uh, we, we practically feel like we are, we've, we've lived together for 17 years and, and um, yeah, we're going extremely well and um, extremely happy and fortunate. Um, the with guy that sounds like the best guy and, you know, maybe, in a way that that's one of the great parts of the story is it's not guaranteed to meet somebody that is your soulmate for 17 years. So, I mean, that's, and, and continuing. So that's kind yeah. of neat. What is the moral of the story? Yeah. Well, look, I think my story is very, um, it's extreme and, and um, what I, what I went through and I, was pretty much one of the first ones to actually talk about uh, domestic violence and, and abuse in sport. And, um, you know, my abuse started when I was six years old and, and obviously you've read the book and I describe all that uh, in, in detail in the book. And, and that's what I wanted. The book is not easy to read for a lot of people, even though everyone says that they do end up reading it in, in 48 hours. Uh, because it's just going to keep on reading and flip that page and read more as tough as it is. And I think that's what I, I wanted to write the book, first of all, to uh, shed light on what happened. I feel, felt like obviously people never knew uh, what happened and why certain things were the way they were. I felt like it was important to talk about. I could never quite, even though I people were surprised sometimes when, it's, when I said, look, I left home at 19. I separated myself from him. There was always something tying me to him and his name because of how extreme he was. So I wanted to kind of... Um, uh, clear all that up and 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 put that into words and into a book um, but also at the end of the day it was about to shed light on what actually happens and and to help someone um and just to show people that you know um i was going through this extremely extremely tough situation in life but i was fighting for something better i was fighting for something else and i wanted to play tennis i wanted to in the end fight for a better life and i think i had you know, I was quite gutsy to do it when I did at 19 because um, I was still so young. And um, to do it with, you know, I had all this, you know, media attention. I was a public first person in a public, you know, life. And um, doing it all 
that way and not actually having having a private life it all you know accumulated like i said to battling depression for 10 years almost committing suicide but i got out of it and in the end um you know i was able to come out as you know kind of a uh, i think i turned out pretty good quite a normal person and, and be able to live a normal life so i think it's all about um uh, hopefully others finding inspiration it doesn't have to be for a similar situation for a similar story it might be for something else but that you can overcome things and that you can get through the toughest of moments. Do you go to therapy and did you go to therapy? Uh, a little bit of both actually. At the beginning, I didn't really know what I was dealing with. So I didn't actually even know that I had to go um, and try and get help. Then I did go for, for a while and I felt like it really helped me. Uh, but it's also a little bit sometimes you know, you have to um, persevere, you know, things are not always going to get better, but I think it's about getting through each day and it's about you actually getting stronger. Um, it's not about things going away because yeah, sometimes they might, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but sometimes they might not go away for a while. And it's about perseverance um, and continuing to fight and then, you know, getting stronger through each and every day to, to you actually in the end, you know, get to, to, to a stage where, you know, you can deal with things. You can deal with anything that gets thrown at you because you've become so strong and, and, and you believe actually that you can get through things and there are better days. Did your father's alcoholism affect you as far as drinking? Do you have a sip? Do you run from a bar? Um, uh, I don't run from it, but I also don't drink. It's something that I've never, drink. ever, no, I've never, ever really liked at all. I don't know whether it has to do with, obviously, my situation and what I went through and seeing him uh, drink so much. Um, you know, if we're toasting or something, I'll have a sip, but I actually genuinely don't like it. It's, I've never really drank. So Lena Doki um, never took a sip. Yeah. Amazing. No. You gained a ton of weight. And you lost a ton of weight in the last 18 months. What do you attribute the weight gain to and how did you trim down? Well, uh, I think it comes, it definitely came from uh, me retiring. Um, I had to retire um, you know, seven years ago due to an injury. And that was really hard on me because I felt like uh, I certainly wasn't ready to stop playing tennis. I was going to play for another at least three to five years. Uh, and this kind of ended my career and, and um, actually ended it very suddenly. And that was what was hard. I wasn't um, ready for retirement and um, I certainly didn't think it was going to come when it came. I didn't know that the last match that I played on tour, that that was going to actually be. So it was tough. I really couldn't find my way for a few years and I couldn't actually find you know, what life was going to be like um, after tennis, what that looked like, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to try, what were some of my other passions. Um, and yeah, that took a little while to kind of settle in and just the disappointment of having to end my career early. I kind of felt a little bit back into, um, you know, dealing with some depression and anxiety, uh, but I was able to, you know, come out of that. But then, um, yeah, I definitely paid the price with um with obviously my my weight and it was uh, something that i really wanted to get under control that i worked uh, very hard for and i was able to get get control over kind of like the last 18 months two years um certainly wasn't easy but uh yeah i think retirement um is tough people have no idea or players and, and athletes sometimes have no idea what you're in for especially if it happens suddenly and it's something that you actually have to prepare for it's such a different life um there's just a lifestyle that you're used to, something that you know your whole life, 
is completely gone, you know, from all that travel, from all that competing, training, um, you know, that adrenaline, the crowds, um, going to a different tournament, playing 25, 30 tournaments a year, doing all this media um, stuff that, that we have to do and, and all that, it's all gone, it all stops. And it's a huge, huge adjustment, but also we know nothing else actually as tennis players. So you have to learn to live this new life. And actually that um, adrenaline and that excitement will never be in your life again. And that's something that you have to deal with and try and find other things that actually make you happy. And that's, it's definitely, it takes time. It's an adjustment, something I wasn't ready for just yet, uh, but I was thrown into it, had to deal with it. And um, yeah, I'm kind of glad that um, I've now come out the other, the other end again. I've overcome something that's really hard. It's not easy to have such a huge um, weight gain, almost you know, double my normal weight and size and then go and try and you know lose that weight as well but i'm happy with the adjustments that i've made and, and going into you know my tv career and commentating career has been incredible much my motivational speaking as well so i found definitely things that i love i found a way and I'm, I'm very proud of what i've done so what are your broadcasting commitments through the year so yeah so i do um obviously the big one for me is the australian tv channel nine that covers um, you know, a lot of the Fed Cup covers all of the Australian summer um, and Grand Slam. So for me, um, that's that's really uh, a big one with Channel 9. Um, and uh, yeah, other little bits and pieces that I do as well. But I've also got a huge commitment for me with my motivational speaking in Australia. It's something that I absolutely love to do. So um, sometimes uh, I have to weigh between commentating TV and that. Um, so I try to find a balance uh, because I do so much of that in Australia and something that, like I said, gives me so much joy um, going out there and, you know, giving your speech, your, your keynote speech and talking for 30, 40 minutes to, you know, 500, 800, 1,000 people sometimes. Um, it's, not, it's not easy, but I've managed, it's something that I've managed to actually really love and I really enjoy going out there up on that stage and, and telling my story um, and, and going into subjects like mental health and domestic violence. And actually from there, doing something good, trying to help someone, getting involved with different foundations and charities. So that's a big part of what I what I do and who I am. So I really try to balance that out well with all my TV. You've talked about Australia experiencing racism from the time you got there. Here in the United States, we have tremendous racial issues. What are your feelings about the situation currently in Australia? Uh, look, I, I talk about my experience um, on, on, on some of the things that I went through when I was, um, when I was young. And uh, look, I've, um, I feel like, and I say this in the book, I feel like uh, we're very lucky to have made Australia home, that we had this opportunity. Um, you know, I didn't have an easy time, uh, but I think, you know, mine was, you know, it's always going to be, I think, um, some isolated you know, incidents and stories. And I don't think that, uh, definitely don't think that um, Australia um, is that type of country. I've also had great experiences as well, um, just because I had, um, you know, I was a little bit unfortunate to go through some of those experiences doesn't mean that everyone is like that, certainly not. Um, so I, I definitely feel like I've been lucky to, to, to have the opportunity um, to come from war and being a refugee to Australia, um, I was, uh, you know, I, I was um, 
I was, I was, I was accepted and I was, I got a lot of help from Australia in general. Um, they definitely helped make my, my tennis career possible. Like I said, yes, I had certain, you know, individual cases where I did face bullying and I did face racism, but I don't think that that defines um, the nation and the country. Um, I definitely don't, don't think that I think Australia is incredible. Um, and I definitely, um, even since then have, um, felt that and, and I have a lot of support here. Um, and just not just from people, but from media and that shows it all as well. So, um, no, I definitely don't feel like, um, Australia is, is that as a nation far from it. Um, and like I said, again, I think I was a little bit unfortunate that I had, you know, um, here and there, uh, situations where I did face that, but definitely doesn't, you know, doesn't define, um, and show what sure. Australia is as a country because it's a very, it's actually the opposite. It's a very multicultural country um, and not racist at all. Maybe, um, maybe there's room for improvement everywhere, right? <laughs> In a way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In saying that, you know, absolutely. And I think we can, I always say that those people ask me about you know, even abuse in children in sport and domestic violence. And look, how we've come a long way in 20 years, uh, haven't we, with stuff like that, even here in Australia, with looking at, you know, uh, some statistics and also the way that it's dealt with. We've come a long way. Um, and same thing goes with, um, I think, with things like racism. But, of course, there's always room for, from, for improvement with everything, you know, and, and um, we, we see that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I, I will always say, um, with anything that you talk about, we can always be better. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I just say it, and you say what comes into your mind. You ready? Okay. Your favorite racket? Uh, you mean brand? Well, I mean, no, the racket that you love the most. It's a 10-ball oh, scramble. You can say whatever you want. Well, um, I'll go with uh, Wilson, my current racket. <laughs> what is your current racket? Blade. You play with the blade. Is that the green? Yeah. Is that the green? Yes, black and green. That's a great racket. Yeah, also Wilson BLX that I played with as well. <laughs> where did you play your, what racket you play your best tennis with, would you say? Oh, uh, Oh, look, that's a, it's tough to choose. I'll, I'll go with my, um, let's go with my 2009 Australian Open quarterfinal. So I played with Wilson BLX. Uh, we'll that was your, that, that was your stick. Size or your grip? Uh, four and three eighths. How do you string your racket? Um, so I use a, a gut and uh, an all power string. So half, half. What tension? Uh, 22, 21 kilos always always uh, if it gets a little bit hotter i'll go up uh, a kilo or two if it gets uh uh colder i'll go down yeah did you save your credentials uh, yes some of them yeah where are they ah oh, they're here they're with me i have them especially have a, the grand slam you have them in yeah. a box or do you where do you keep them yeah yeah in a box everyone's got them in a box uh what about your trophies yeah. Um, that's a long story. Um, actually my father kept most of those, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but, uh, I have a few that I, uh, that I was able to, that I was able to get. So I you know what? I remember home. part of that in the, in the book now. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's your, okay, no. your, your greatest win. Oh, I've had a lot, but I'll go with, uh, because Monica Sellers was such a big idol of mine, the first time I beat Monica. 
Where was that? That was in uh, 2001 Paris Indoors. Uh, do you have a worst loss? No, I wouldn't say worst loss, not really. Um, but I would say one that maybe hurt a little bit more uh, was the Sydney Olympic semi-final. What was the, what was the match? Against uh, Dementieva. I actually won the first set and then ended up losing in three. <laughs> Your favorite tournament? My favorite tournament, uh, Australian Open. Your favorite city? Uh, uh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll have to go with Melbourne. <laughs> Other than Melbourne, your favorite city? Is Other there a place Melbourne, you love? Did you love Rome? I thought you loved Rome. New York. New York. I do love Rome. I love Rome, Paris, and Miami, but I'll go with, uh, if I really had to pick, I'll go with New York. Really? That's cool. Yeah. Your mm. favorite court? Rod Laver Arena. Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is okay. the queen of the court. Um, if you were the queen of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket with no aggravation, what would it be? Uh, I really like the shot clock that was brought in. So that I would have done. And I also... Um, I like what's now being done, unfortunately, because of the whole COVID situation where you have to get your own towel in that same time. I think it's really quickened up play. Um, and there's always been a lot of talk about, you know, uh, that time that players sometimes take between points and that whole towel situation. And I like how that's quickened up now, unfortunately, with ball kids not being able to handle your towel and you have to do it yourself. Um, it's really quickened up play. So that's something I would keep. Yelena Dokic wants it quicker. Uh, do you have any opinion about uh, best of five set tennis uh, in the slams for the men? Do you think, do you think that needs to stop? Uh, look, I think we've, we, we've liked that five set tennis um, with the men. And I think it, uh, it definitely, um, it brings something different. We've seen so many incredible matches, so many turnarounds. And even when someone's up two sets to one, sometimes they've lost matches and such, you know, exciting um, five set matches. So, um, yeah, look, I like the whole five set, um, the whole five set debate. I, I, would, um, I would keep it for the Grand Slams. Don't forget, we've had it in other tournaments. So, so we had a lot more than we have it now. So I think keeping it for the Grand Slams, I, I, I think it brings an excitement um, to tennis and a lot of people um, like to watch those five sets. I mean, remember the Djokovic-Federer match at Wimbledon last year and, and you know, the Djokovic-Nadal Australian Open final here a few years ago, they went on for five hours, you know. Um, it's exciting. It's, those are classics. Those are always going to stay there and always be talked about. So I don't know. I like those. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm so happy we connected. I wish you all the best and congratulations on, you know, really all of your success towards the back end here now. I think that sometimes it's not how you start, but it's how you finish. Absolutely. Thank you so much, obviously, for, for having me and connecting. And um, yeah, I loved uh, being a part of this uh, podcast today and hopefully we can connect again. It's exciting. Lena Dokic, have a terrific uh it's Wednesday here. It's Thursday there, right? So 
Uh, have yeah. a terrific Thursday and rest of your week. Uh, you are released. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye. Huge thank you to Yelena Dokic and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. The tennis t-shirt of 2020, the quarantine classic shirt, is still available. We're taking orders for the Blanc the Terabat 2 and the Vare, which is green. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.